0: are. This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Even though the price of gasoline has jumped this spring, oil producers say we shouldn't worry about running on empty. They say the world has plenty
1: of oil. Each year we tend to find more oil than what we consume, so we build our reserves. And as long as that happens, the end is not in sight.
0: But some say the bigger question about oil is price, not supply. They predict that petroleum will cost a lot more in the years ahead, and that even with the recent spike at the pump, gas is still relatively cheap.
2: You know, we're paying less for a, a gallon of gasoline than we do for a gallon of bottled water. And we're really treating it like it's it's water at this point.
0: The debate over the end of cheap oil this week. Also, the mountain lion was hunted to extinction in the eastern U.S., but now some folks ardently believe the big cats have made their way back from the West. We'll try to track them down on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If the recent run-up in gasoline prices has you thinking that gas is going to stay high or go even higher, and it's time to get a more fuel-efficient car, you're not alone. Sales of the gas-guzzling Hummer are off by more than 25% from last year, and there's a backlog of orders for the gasoline-electric hybrid sedans made by Honda and Toyota. You can figure on waiting a month or more to get delivery of a Honda Civic Hybrid, which looks like any other Civic, but can go as far as 650 miles on a single tank of gas. And the wait is now six months or more for the Toyota Prius, which has its own ultra-cool aerodynamic design, and you push a button instead of turning a key to get it going. Hollywood celebrities have made the Prius the in-car for a certain crowd, and some dealers have been getting $5,000 or more over list price. Dealers also report a quiet run on new and used diesel cars, which get better mileage and can also burn fuel based on cooking oil. But do today's higher gas prices, in fact, signal the beginning of a long-term trend? Or is this a momentary spike that will go away just as the high prices of two decades ago eventually dropped? The cover story of the National Geographic this month is titled The End of Cheap Oil. Bill Allen is the editor-in-chief of the magazine, and we begin our coverage today with him. Bill Allen, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, Steve. It's a
2: pleasure to be here. Um, Bill, uh, now you're from uh, Texas oil country, right? Yeah, I grew up in the middle of the East Texas oil patch. What was that like? Well, it was very interesting. Uh, all of your friends or a lot of your friends were involved in the oil industry every day. You always drove past uh, oil derricks that were still, still being, uh, being used and a lot of additional production being taken out of some of the old fields there. So, from your youth, oil's a pretty good deal then, huh? Well, it has been. I know when I was growing up, I remember some of the oil wars when there were cheap gasoline prices, down to about 19 cents a gallon. Boy, we haven't seen that in a long time. I
0: guess not. In fact, rising, rising gas prices have uh, many people grumbling. Um, but now your, your story, your cover story in the National Geographic says we're still living in the age of cheap oil here in the United States. How so?
2: Well, that's it. Steve, if you look back and you see what the production has been and where we are and, and what we're actually charging for oil, you know, we're paying less for a, a gallon of gasoline than we do for a gallon of bottled water. And we're really treating it like it's, it's water at this point. We're seeing oil that is at prices uh, of about, oh, a little under $40 a barrel now. Back in 1983, when there was an oil spike, it went up to about seven, the equivalent of $70 a barrel. So with disruptions, uh, we could see that kind of level, uh, especially as demand increases.
0: So at what point do you see us crossing over from uh, cheap to expensive oil? And and to what extent are the current rising gasoline prices a signal of us getting close to that threshold?
2: Well, I think what you have to look at is what the increasing demand is around the world. For example, we're using about, uh, oh, two-thirds of our our oil supply right now to burn in cars and airplanes and trucks, but uh, we're, producing, we're producing about 40 percent of what we use in this country, and we're using 25 percent of the entire world's production of oil right now, and uh, we only have five percent of the population. So what's going to happen when a country like China, for example, comes online and begins to rise to the level of consumerism that we have in this country? They, they purchased about 2 million cars last year. We put about 17 million on the road. But as that goes up in China, we're going to see an incredibly increase in uh, in world demand for oil. And when demand goes up and supply does not keep pace with it, then the prices go up. And that's what we mean by the end of cheap oil. Well, let's talk about
0: supply. Um... Well, some folks say that uh, the supply of oil is going to be in decline. uh, Others say that there are plenty of undiscovered reserves. What is it? Uh, Iraq officially has a $100 oil reserve, but they think that it's 10 times that if you were to really go on the geological uh, expeditions. And they say that uh, there's
2: actually plenty of oil on the planet. What did your reporting find? We found there is absolutely there's a lot of oil on the planet and the emphasis, that's why we put the emphasis on cheap oil. It depends on the price. If you're going to say, we have oh, $35 a barrel oil today, well, what happens if the price goes to $70? That's going to give a lot of people an incentive to go out and explore for more oil and increase the, uh, the supply that we have. So it's really looking at what the, uh, the supply and demand curves are. Now, when we're actually going to cross that supply-demand point, is really a subject of some debate. Well,
0: how do you tally these oil forecasts, and, and how do you give them credibility? When you were working on this story, um, how were you able to, to, to weight these estimates?
2: What we tried to do was was see what the, what the extreme ranges were. And then there's a predominance of, uh, it's almost like a bell curve. You begin to see a clustering of estimates in the middle. And so we accepted something uh, around the the time of 2016 uh, to perhaps 2020 as being the most likely time at which this tipping point is going to occur. But all of that depends, Steve, again, on how high the uh, price of oil is going to be. If you're talking about $25 a barrel oil, there's a certain amount in the ground. If you say, well, we're going to go to $40 a barrel oil, then suddenly, well, it makes more sense now. I can invest and put more money into developing new fields over there that we think are going to be more expensive to produce. So we will have an even greater amount in our reserves. Then, if you look at the tar sands in Canada, for example, where you have estimates, uh, if, if you include the estimates of the tar sands in Canada, you've moved them right into second place in worldwide petroleum reserves. But that oil, is going to be very expensive and comes with an enormous environmental cost, whether it's a destruction of 15,000 square miles of of Canada or where you're talking about a lot of a lot of uh, of fresh water being used or whether you're talking about the increased uh, global warming gases that are being produced when you try and refine that uh, crack and refine that particular kind of oil. Uh, those are all all things that are just up in the air. It's almost impossible to say... This is what it's going to be. You have to say, this is what our reserves are at X dollars per barrel.
0: Let's talk a bit about oil uh, recovery technologies. Now, you grew up in the oil fields there of East Texas. Um, they uh, used to just, what, put a drill in the ground
2: and go, right? That's exactly it. And then uh, some things came on called secondary recovery, at which you could inject either water or gas into the ground and drive that oil out of the oil shale, or the oil sands, uh, up into the, uh, to the pipes for recovery. And uh, that that's has really increased greatly the recovery and the amount of oil that you can recover from each field. And now the Russians have begun moving using uh, this kind of technique in, uh, in their areas. And it has really increased their production quite dramatically. As a matter of fact, they just uh, surpassed Saudi Arabia as the world's largest oil producer, And that's primarily because of the secondary techniques. They're now beginning to drill for oil and to recover oil in the same way that the United States has been doing for a long time.
0: So what's the true cost, then, of these emerging oil technologies in terms of, well, the environment as well as the political and social impacts?
2: Well, Steve, there are are a lot of things that are really the hidden costs of oil uh, and using using gasoline, for example. Some are even more subtle than others. If you look at... uh, at just the cost of the oil itself. About 50% of the cost of a gallon of gasoline in this country comes from the crude oil cost itself. But then you have other, other costs, such as refining and distribution, the profit to the oil companies, et cetera. But, and then you have taxes. Now, we're, in this country, we pay probably less tax than almost anyone else in the world on, uh, on oil. If you look at, uh, at Germany or England or some of the European, other European countries, you end up with three to four dollars per gallon in taxes. But there are other other hidden costs, such as the cost of sitting in traffic and burning fuel that is not being used to push someone somewhere, but is just being burned while you're sitting at, at stoplights or in gridlock someplace. Then the cost of accidents. But there's a there's an even more hidden cost than that, and it's one that's almost impossible to to measure. What is the cost of securing Oil fields around the world. This is in terms of military presence, of security presences, around the world. Whether it's in the oil fields themselves or in the shipping lanes to protect that. Right now, there's a there's a big worry in the Malacca Straits around Indonesia, as to what's going to happen if Al Qaeda should suddenly launch an attack there. You have a very narrow choke point about a mile across. If a uh, if a big tanker or something is sunk there, then you're going to have to. Uh, have a bit of a diversion in another, an additional thousand miles in your trip uh, to get oil, especially to Japan, for example. So these are all really, really hidden costs, and there's almost no way to put uh, a cost on that, a price on that.
0: Let's make a try at looking at these hidden costs. What do you estimate it costs us in terms of, say, accidents?
2: I would guess probably about a dollar a gallon to sit there and burn oil while you're while you're sitting in a traffic jam, and about another another 80 cents for uh, traffic accidents and stuff. So by the time you add all of these things together, you're looking at a uh, price somewhat over $4 a gallon is the actual cost of the oil that you're burning in your car now.
0: What kind of stab could you make at the, at the defense costs? I mean, what's sort of the minimum amount that we could attribute to um, our military presence that's required to re- maintain oil security at this point?
2: That's really, that's an even more difficult number to come up with uh, it would just be a uh, a wild guess for anyone to come up with what percentage of our of our uh, military budget is devoted to that. But I would think it has to be at least another dollar or two dollars per gallon. So at the end of the day, oil
0: gasoline for a car is costing everybody about six dollars a gallon.
2: That would probably be about right. Six, maybe even seven dollars a gallon, Steve
0: we don't pay that at the pump of course but cuz it comes from things like the defense uh, budget or people's health insurance for for taking care of accidents or or companies really losing the productivity of employees stuck in traffic
2: that's exactly it and that's why those are those are such hidden costs and why it's so hard to narrow those things down but they are indeed real costs of oil
0: so Bill, how do you get that number into the public discussion about the way we use energy, the way we use oil?
2: Well, Steve, I think one of the best ways is to do exactly what you're doing right now. Get it out there and, and uh, make people know what the true cost is. And then maybe they will be able to figure out that, uh, hey, it's, this is an extraordinary value, extraordinarily valuable commodity – Maybe we should concentrate a little bit more on that one-third of our oil supply that is not being burned but is used to to produce uh, fertilizers for pesticides, for plastics, for your your uh, soccer balls, bike helmets, cell phones. That, that kind of thing may be an even better use for the oil that we have now.
0: I want to ask you more about that, but we need to take a break right now. My guest is Bill Allen, Editor-in-Chief of National Geographic magazine. In just a minute, we'll continue our discussion with Bill Allen and then talk with the Chief Economist from the American Petroleum Institute. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Bill Allen, Editor-in-Chief of the National Geographic magazine. This month's cover story is called The End of Cheap Oil. Bill uh, before the break, you were telling us how oil is used for more than just gassing up our cars while two thirds of it is used for transportation here in the u s You said the remaining third goes for a wide variety of other purposes. Now, what are some of these other uses of oil
2: well let 's see if you have uh, some kind of uh, carpeting in your in your home or that 's probably unless it 's cotton or wool is probably going to be uh, derived from oil products, uh, almost anything that 's plastic, a lot of parts of television cell phones a lot of these things are derived from uh, from oil it takes about 3 quarters of a gallon of gasoline to produce a pound of steak it takes about 7 7 gallons of gasoline of oil in order to produce a tire so there's a lot of things that we don't really think about that are directly related to uh, the rest of our lives we have we have a lot of a lot of these things that are produced and as a matter of fact some people have said you know perhaps it is That oil is really too valuable to burn. It's much more useful for all of these other, for the entire plastics industry, for all of this. If uh, the cost of our food, for example, in uh, the reason that that corn costs, uh, is relatively inexpensive, is probably because of relatively inexpensive oil. Oil that's used as fertilizer. All it's used is fertilized. That's a, another, another huge use in our agricultural area that people really don't think about. Uh, pesticides, those are also derived. If we didn't have pesticides or fertilizers derived from oil products, our, our costs of, of food would uh, increase dramatically and would have a direct effect on all of us. Um, I presume that, that everybody likes to eat.
0: Well, Guilty as charged. <laughs> if oil gets more expensive, it would seem that alternatives would swing into place that that very high price would uh, would change people's behavior like in the old um, the embargo say from
2: the 70s people started building and buying much smaller cars Steve you're you're right we have seen that actually happen back in 1983 we saw about a 15 percent drop in US domestic oil consumption when the oil prices did go up to about $70 a barrel and we saw people demand more fuel-efficient cars so that kind of thing in all probability would happen. Also you see the same kind of thing from taxes in uh, in Germany for example where a lot of the cost is maybe 3 to 4 dollars in that range of the cost of a gallon of oil, uh gallon of gasoline rather is by taxes you do see a demand for more fuel efficient cars. So that kind of thing could delay the time at which we have to switch to an alternative and it takes a lot of time Steve to to find these new technologies that are going to replace oil. We're talking uh, 20, 30, 40, some even say 50 years to define, to find new technologies that would be able to replace oil. And every day that we can buy by conserving gives us a little bit more time to develop those technologies. What do you think the world is going to look like when this uh, oil crunch comes? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of shock. You know, in this in this country especially, we're not very good at planning ahead many times. We sort of wait for other people to force the action, and then we react. The Americans have a, a great way of reacting very quickly to problems, but we're, we don't have the same kind of great track record at anticipating problems. So I would think that as, this, as the time gets closer and the oil prices begin to creep up, there's going to be a slow realization that we really do have to conserve, and we have to find other ways to uh, to use more fuel-efficient cars, for example, since we do use about two-thirds of this in our for uh, fuel. Um, so, Bill, what's being done
0: then to guard against the day when oil is no longer cheap? I mean, what changes should we be making that we're not right now?
2: Well, one of the things that we really can do that's that's almost uh, pain-free is to demand and, and look for more fuel-efficient cars. This is the kind of thing that uh, doesn't really take uh, a lot of sacrifice on everyone's part, and you can continue using those cars. It's uh, That's probably the biggest single thing that we can do. Obviously, conserving energy in all, in all forms is going to be a, another way.
0: Now, one question about burning oil. Um, with all the concern about climate change, how long do you think we'll be able to keep burning oil the way we've been burning it?
2: Well, there's no indication that uh, there's a, a great deal of incentive to stop burning it. So, uh, I think that we will probably continue to burn it until the price gets too expensive. And that's why we're talking about cheap oil. As long as it is so cheap that we can, can almost use it as a disposable commodity, we will probably continue to use it as a disposable commodity. How do you get people to to change their approach to this, the political system to change its approach to this? Well, it's very difficult. You know, it's going to be political suicide for for anyone to say, you know, what we really need in this country is about $3 a gallon tax. I mean, I I can't even imagine a president supporting that or the majority of the House and the Senate or the Senate doing anything like that. Uh, So it's going to be very difficult to attack it from, from that point of view. And what's going to happen as these prices go up and as, as we see what the effect is of this increased oil, oil price, we're going to give away to other countries and to other, other petroleum suppliers the ability that we have to control our own destiny. We could control uh, by finding some way to encourage further conservation in this country and, and more gas mileage in cars, for example. But it's, it's going to be very difficult to do it's going to take a lot of political will and it's going to take a lot of explaining by uh, a lot of politicians and it's going to take a lot of courage by politicians to say you know we have uh, we have a serious problem that we're going to be facing here and until we can develop new technologies for this we have to we have to make sure that we're going to have the oil to get us through that bridge time it it may be that there has to be some other drastic drastic step that is taken. But what's going to happen is that drastic step is probably going to have to be taken outside of our political system because we might react very well to that. But I don't think that we're going to be proactive. You said it would we'll take drastic action. What do you mean by that? If there is another, another bump in oil prices, if there is a, a huge political change in, in some country that has control over uh, a significant part of the supplies in the world, and you see oil suddenly double or triple in price that 's drastic action at that point there's there 's going to be a uh, uh, an enormous gas line down the street there 's going to be an enormous increase in the in the cost of food of all the things that we use oil for plastics anything that has plastic would uh, would go up if you see that if you see that price spike in natural in uh, petroleum products so it's that kind of thing that would then be outside the control of the United States that uh, that we would have to react to we have the we have the ability to try and and change standards for automobiles to even consider the possibility of uh, of reducing oil consumption some way but if we don't do it and someone else does, then that's the kind of shock that everyone is going to see and recognize, man, we have really been hit right between the eyes with this.
0: Bill Allen is editor-in-chief of the National Geographic magazine. Bill, thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you very much, Steve. I enjoyed it. To get a different perspective, I'd like to turn now to John Felmy. He's chief economist and director of policy analysis and statistics for the American Petroleum Institute. John, welcome to Living on Earth.
1: Thank you for having me. Now, I, uh,
0: I got to ask you this, we hear from folks who say that the days of cheap oil are coming to an end, that oil production could peak uh, sometime soon, say by 2016, and gradually head down from there. How accurate do you think these predictions are?
1: I don't think they're at all accurate. Folks have been arguing that we're going to run out of oil very soon for the last hundred years, but unfortunately the facts uh, don't prove them correct. Each year, we tend to find more oil than what we consume, so we build our reserves. And as long as that happens, the end is not in sight. So from your research, what would you say
0: is the worst-case scenario for the global oil supply that, uh, that you consider in your long-range planning? I mean, at what point is there going to be tightness in the supply? Is it 5 years, 10 years, 20, 50, 100, 200? At what point do your, do you, does your research say, well, we should be concerned?
1: first of all, we're never going to run out of oil. It's a question of the price and the tightness, as you indicated. Um, It's clear that there are abundant resources. We've got a trillion, maybe 1.2 trillion barrels of oil that we know about, and there's probably twice that that we haven't simply found. The question is, will we be able to go about and get it? Will we be able to explore for the oil, and will we be able to Uh, develop the resources that are most promising. Okay. And the answer is? The real concern I have is for the restrictions to be placed on the industry and not allow us to do that. And then it could be short-term in terms of of supply impact. So it's really more the political framework that I can see as a uh, restriction on supply. What would those constraints be, John? Basically preventing us from developing resources where we know they are. Alaska is an excellent example where we could produce 10 billion barrels of oil, but we can't uh, explore and produce it there. The outer continental shelves of both the west and east coast are another example, some rocky mountain areas. And then internationally, there's, of course, the uh, the politics of various countries that uh, may prevent that type of exploration. So it's more of uh, not being able to develop it is the big concern that I have.
0: John, it's at some point in the years ahead, uh, the economy is going to going to make a change in in in, in how it uh, consumes energy, whether it's over the near term or, or further out. At, at what point do you see uh, economies making a shift away from
1: burning oil? It's likely not to change within our lifetimes. If you look at what share oil comprises of our consumption, it's roughly 40 percent. There are very few other alternatives to oil, especially for transportation, that one can see developments such as hydrogen and uh, other alternatives whether they be electric vehicles or things like that are much further down the pike than we can see at this point. There are some promising alternatives that can be developed such as methane hydrates which is uh, uh, natural gas frozen in ice crystals which could perhaps play an important role say in the latter part of this century but in the short run uh, the role of oil, coal, gas, nuclear, uh, and hydro are likely to be the same, and those are our conventional energy sources.
0: Now, people say that uh, if you were to take uh, today's uh, dollars, that the, the last peak of oil uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s was about the equivalent of $70 a barrel. Um, how close to accurate is that view?
1: When you adjust for inflation, you'll find that uh, the price of a barrel of crude oil in 1981 was about $72 a barrel. And gasoline prices uh, were almost $3 a gallon when you adjust for inflation.
0: So from that analysis, you would say that we have a long ways to go then in the present price run up before we feel the discomfort of the uh, 1970s,
1: 1980s? Well, it's clear we've already begun to feel some of the discomfort because, of course, higher oil prices mean lower uh, incomes, lower purchasing power, uh, a drag on the economy. Uh, but uh, we're far from the peak of oil prices that we experienced uh, in the early 1980s.
0: Um, what, would, uh, what would it do to the economy if we got back to those uh, uh, early 80s uh, oil prices, if, if oil, in fact, was $70 a barrel?
1: If we went from the current price, which is just slightly less than $40 a barrel, to over $70 a barrel, um, many economists would argue that it would likely push the economy into recession.
0: And what are the odds of that happening at this point, do you think?
1: At this point, it's very difficult to tell. Uh, It's going to depend on, first of all, OPEC behavior, how well things turn out in Iraq, Venezuela, Nigeria. And then on the demand side, will the Chinese economy continue to grow at the very fast rate that it has been growing? And will other economies uh, continue to grow, such as India? Uh, And each of these economies has increased their demand for petroleum dramatically and has had a real impact on the world marketplace for crude oil. So maybe the question is not whether but when we'll see $70 a barrel oil. Then you have to get back to the supply side. Uh, As we've seen, technology in the oil industry has continued to dramatically improve. Uh, We have been able to find oil uh, much more easily than we have in the past at much lower cost. We've been able to produce oil in thousands of feet of water. We've been able to produce oil in extremely hostile environments. And we've been able to find it such that you can find a deposit of oil, you know, five miles away using the seismic technology that we have. So as long as the technology continues to develop at the pace it has been, then what it means is you're able to bring more and more oil on stream uh, more cheaply.
0: Now, how do these uh, new oil recovery technologies uh, uh, compare with the traditional uh, drilling that the industry was built on, and particularly cost-wise?
1: They've uh, brought the cost of uh, finding and producing oil down dramatically. Uh, We've seen uh, over even the last 20 years a dramatic fall in what we call finding costs of oil so that we're able to find it and produce it uh, for far less than we did even a short period of time ago. It's really a wonderful example of how uh, American industry has uh, responded to the challenge.
0: At what point do you think that uh, oil will be a smaller part of the uh, energy mix than it is today.
1: I don't see oil taking up a smaller part of the energy mix until the latter half of this century at the earliest. Okay, well this is helpful.
0: So the latter part of the century, so we're looking maybe is 2050 or so in the second half of the century that uh, we'll see this gradual shift away from oil?
1: Well, I, it, it's hard to even say at that point. I think that uh, the latter half of the century, uh, I would think more of in the last quarter of the century. Um, so maybe I'm using uh, you know improper English, which is typical of a Central Pennsylvanian. But uh, I see that um, uh, we'll continue to develop more resources. Natural gas will continue to grow in share, primarily for electricity generation. But it's going to be very, very difficult to shift off of oil for transportation uh, until we see some fundamental breakthroughs in, uh, in the technologies involved. John Felmy is Chief Economist and
0: Director of Policy Analysis and Statistics for the American Petroleum Institute in Washington. John, thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks for having me. Just ahead, tracking the trail of the elusive and perhaps mythical eastern cougar. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu.
4: New research from England suggests that ducks, like their human counterparts, have regional accents. According to Dr. Victoria de of Middlesex University, a duck's environment is a big factor when it comes to fine-tuning its dialect. Doraiga recorded the various sounds of cockney ducks in the heart of London and their Cornish cousins at a farm in Cornwall. The mallards were all born and bred in their respective locales, and after some careful listening, Dereika noticed some audible differences. <laughs> These Cornish ducks communicate in long, relaxed quacks. Dereika attributes this to the slow pace of country living. <laughs> These city ducks prefer louder, brassier quacks. Dereika believes that the fast pace of London breeds louder, more stressed ducks. These quack scents are much like the accents of human inhabitants of the same regions. Cornish speakers are known for their more open and drawn-out sounds, whereas the Cockney brogue uses shorter and more guttural vowels. In the future, Dr. Dureka hopes to take this duck research abroad and explore the quacks of Scottish, Welsh, and Irish fowl throughout the British Isles. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Jennifer Chu.
0: And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth.
3: Support for NPR comes from NPR Stations and Aveda, an earth-conscious beauty company committed to preserving natural resources and finding more sustainable ways of doing business. Information available at Aveda.com. The Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. The Annenberg Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities, on the web at WKKF.org. This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time now for comments from you, our listeners. Our interview with Don Prince-Hughes, author of Songs of the Guerrilla Nation, touched a lot of listeners. She told us about growing up with a form of autism called Asperger's syndrome and how her interactions with gorillas helped her understand herself. The discussion struck a chord with Robert Perrazzo, who hears us on WEDW in Stamford, Connecticut. Like Don Prince-Hughes, Mr. Perrazzo was not diagnosed with Asperger's until he was an adult. And while more attention has been paid to the disorder in the last decade, Mr. Perrazzo laments what he says is the lack of funding for services. My Asperger's, Mr. Perrazzo writes is my block in the road of life. Our piece on taxidermy raised the hackles of some listeners. Norm Phelps of the Fund for Animals listens to the show on WYPR in Baltimore, Maryland. He writes, Taxidermy exists to support trophy hunting, which is nothing more than killing harmless and helpless animals for ego gratification and bragging rights. Catherine Bowman of Traverse City, Michigan, expressed dismay that we didn't explore the chemicals used in taxidermy. Ms. Bowman used to do taxidermy and tanning until she, quote, woke up and decided I must be part of the solution to creating a healthier and sustainable world. She continues, there is just no environmentally conscious way to dispose of used taxidermy chemicals. What kind of legacy would I be leaving future generations? And finally, an apology for an error. Sid Miller of New York listens to us on WNYC and wrote in to take us to task for a comment we made in our coral reef story. We compared a damaged coral reef to a ragged neighborhood in the South Bronx, and Mr. Miller says that reference is not only untrue, but prejudicial. We here at Living on Earth agree and apologize. That comment was originally edited out of the broadcast and got back into the show tape by mistake. And if you have a gripe or hear something you like, you may call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write us at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Our email address is comments at loe.org. Once again, comments at loe.org. And you can hear our program, and our previous programs for that matter, by visiting our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. The big cat scientists call Puma Concolor goes by a number of common names in the U.S. Puma. Panther, Mountain Lion, Catamount, Cougar. The long list of names reflects the animal's wide historic range. People once encountered the big cats in nearly all wooded parts of North America. Mountain lions still inhabit much of the West, but wildlife experts say the cat no longer exists in the East. Hunters and settlers wiped it out long ago. Or did they? From the southern Appalachians to New England, hundreds of people insist that big cats still roam remote patches of the eastern states, and they're determined to prove the experts wrong. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports. Todd Lester should be asleep. He
5: just worked the night shift in a West Virginia coal mine, then showered, pulled on one of his Mountain Lion t-shirts, and drove four hours to this remote part of the Monongahela National Forest. Now he'll spend hours in the wet woods in search of something most experts tell him does not exist.
6: Yeah, it probably is an obsession. And it's, you know, if somebody's calling you a liar and, you know, you know what you saw, you know, it it does something to you.
5: Lester spends most his free time traveling these back roads and trails in a quest for photographic evidence of the animal he says he caught sight of some 10 years ago, an eastern cougar. Each month, he places a couple dozen camera traps, cameras triggered by motion and heat sensors, in an effort to monitor all of the nearly one million acres of national forest here.
6: Okay, and camera number 18's got 30 on it. So it's done real good. And this one cougar's all we need. <laughs> the coal
5: miner has become a self schooled cougar expert. He knows the intimate curves of cats' paws by their tracks. He recites in hushed detail the deer carcasses left by a cougar's ambush, bite marks on the neck, disemboweled and partly buried in leaves. And he knows the routes a cougar would likely take through this forest. That's where he straps his camera traps to trees.
6: I mainly look for good, well-used game trails and uh, old logging roads or railroad grades or something like that. And I try to get in remote areas, you know, where there's not a lot of human activity. And that would be the places that a cougar would use but it's you know it's really a shot in the dark you know a cougar could come out within 50 feet of the camera and cut off the trail so it's
5: so what do you think when you're when you're collecting these up are you excited do you think maybe this is the one that's going to have the shot on it
6: yeah i'll tell you the you take these pictures to Walmart, you know, and you take 20 rows of film in and give them to them, you know, and they do an hour service on them, one hour photo. Once you get all the pictures, you know, I take them out to the truck, and I'm like a little kid on Christmas morning, you know, I can't wait to open them up and look at the pictures.
5: Last year's camera traps yielded 639 shots of deer, 204 black bear. One destroyed the camera. There were 40 startled coyotes, 20 bobcats, various raccoons, hikers, hunters, and mountain bikers. One shot was labeled unknown. The tawny animal was too close to the camera to identify.
6: And then you go through all of them, and none of them's got a cougar on it. You know, and then you, your heart's kind of broke. Then you, you think of all the work you put into it and the time you put into it, and it, you know it didn't pay off. So, so it's you know one minute your emotions are real high, and the next minute you're crushed. So,
5: all this started for Lester back in 1983 while he was coon hunting not far from his home in southern West Virginia. He was looking for one of his hunting dogs and instead found a cat.
6: seemed like, you know, when we made eye contact, you know, standing there looking at each other, and the cat turned and left, seemed like it took a piece of me with it, you know. And I've always just wanted to prove, you know, that they were here, you know. Well, it captured a piece of my heart, you know, and really got me interested in it. He later found
5: tracks an expert confirmed were those of a cougar. Lester had heard of other such sightings around Appalachia. He started the Eastern Cougar Foundation to record them. The foundation was soon taking in hundreds of cougar accounts each year from all over the eastern U.S. But wildlife officials generally recognize only one small population of cougars in the east, the endangered Florida panther. So when Lester and others phone officials with cat sightings from elsewhere around the east, they're often met with skepticism.
6: I'll believe in cougars when one lands on my lawn piloting a flying saucer.
5: That's Paul Nickerson, an endangered species biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service.
6: Here's the painful reality. It's a wonderful romantic notion that wild cougars exist here because wild cougars engender a lot of passion, just like wolves do. And everybody in their heart of hearts wants to believe that they're out there. But I've been looking at this stuff for 25 years. They're just not here. They're just not here as a breeding species.
5: Skeptics say most of those who see cougars really see something else. Bobcats, dogs, deer... And the few sightings and tracks that are confirmed, like Lester's, they say those animals are probably escaped captives, pets let loose after becoming unmanageable. Mark Jenkins knows all too well how many cougars are unwisely kept as pets. Um,
6: take you in here. Some of
5: the cats end up in his Cooper's Rock Mountain Lion Sanctuary in West Virginia.
6: This is Tecumseh. Um yeah you can hear him very well. you can hear him talk right there. Um, they, they make about 12 different vocalizations, and he's just just greeting us here.
5: This has aroused some interest here obviously
6: right they, he does they do see the meat here, so uh, he's, he's, he's getting a little excited. <laughs>
5: It's easy to see why someone might want to release a cougar once it turns into 180 pounds of unpredictable predator. It's also easy to see why people want them as pets in the first place. The cubs are adorable, and the big ones can still be as affectionate as your little tabby.
4: Oh, birdie. There you
6: go. Um, they do purr. They're the largest cat in the world that still purrs like your house cat purrs.
5: Participants in the Eastern Cougar Foundation's recent conference visited Jenkins' sanctuary for at least one guaranteed cougar sighting. Many in the group claim to have seen the cats in the wild and in some unlikely places, Ohio, Massachusetts, or Rhode Island. That's where Bill Betty says he spotted one not far from his home.
2: Up from behind the log, a mountain lion stood up, and I saw the the tail, it was probably three or four inches in diameter, about three feet long, Uh, That was really one of the most uh, exciting moments that I can recall in
7: in my life.
5: Betty says he's no tree hugger or animal rights type. He listens to Rush Limbaugh, works for a defense contractor, and he's getting pretty tired of his co-workers busting his chops about seeing a mountain lion behind every tree.
2: Well, um, people who see a mountain
7: lions or think they see them are uh, are often subjected to a lot of ridicule and... uh, you know, that's a concern. You don't want to be, uh, have people make fun of you. And that's one of the problems we have is trying to get
2: witnesses to come forward to talk to, talk to us about uh, what happened. But uh, I, I think really the difference between me and other people that do this is uh, is that I, I'm not guessing that there are Mount lions in New England or I'm not supposing
5: I know they're here. At times, the conference seemed like a sort of support group for cougar true believers who must endure the scorn of skeptics. But there was more to it. Experts like veterinarian Jay Tischendorf were on hand for polite but hard-nosed analysis of alleged cougar evidence. Bill Reichling says he's seen cougars in southern Ohio. He showed Tischendorf some plaster casts of tracks.
6: I was thinking... A uh, cougar or cat with a young one, because we found uh, it,
5: where they wanted, one one of the other had killed a rabbit right along a chain link fence. So then I found this.
7: But I would I would really bet, uh, and again I don't know if I'd bet my paycheck, but pr- pretty <laughs> sure that this is a canid track of some kind for okay. a variety of different. reasons. These claws, if you look at where the base of the toe would be,
6: uh-huh.
4: is right so, there, somewhere
7: right. in this vicinity. You know. Yeah, I was uh,
6: thinking they were claws that came down, but okay
5: turns out the tracks are of a dog and a bobcat. A Massachusetts man who says he saw a mountain lion from his back porch shares some video he shot. His legs, the
7: coloring isn't right like for a, a mountain siamese lion. Cat. You looked like a siamese like cat a housing to housing. me too, yeah.
2: yeah the, tail wasn't long enough for- the animal in the video
5: is a cat, a house cat. Tischendorf is diplomatic with his debunking. He shares this fascination with mountain lions and says he understands why people want to see cougars so much that they think they see them.
7: If I had to put my finger on it, in a general sense, I think the mountain lion probably embodies everything that that many of us would long to be. Live, muscular, intelligent, capable, confident, uh, a survivor, adaptable. And I think it's also a reminder that uh, uh, nature is very, very wild. So I guess a lot of us like to think that perhaps man doesn't have all the answers and that nature still has a few aces up her sleeve. And this puma in the east story may be one of those. But I think the true skeptics, the scornful skeptics, will eventually have to eat a little bit of crow because it's, it's hard to deny the hard evidence that we're seeing right now, particularly in the Midwest and the Great Plains.
5: On the Foundation's maps showing recent cougar sightings, the Midwest and Great Plains states are the hotspots. Scat, tracks, and photos have been confirmed across the area, and a cougar biologist had tagged was killed by a train on the Oklahoma-Kansas border more than 600 miles from its home range. It's enough to catch the attention of the Cougar Foundation's lone skeptic, biologist Dave Mayer. Mayer is a professor of large mammal conservation at the University of Kentucky. He doesn't put much stock in most eastern cougar sightings, but recent reports tell him the western cats could be on the move.
2: Uh, now, I think something is happening. I think there's a phenomenon underway where western populations or most nearby western populations are expanding for one reason or another. There's some very compelling evidence that there's something happening that's very different than what has been occurring over the last century. And uh, I think it is a matter, just a matter of time before they are back here.
5: Mayor says any official effort to reintroduce mountain lions to the east would certainly fail. Habitat is highly fragmented, and people would likely resist putting a new predator in their backyards. But the cats seem to be offering to reintroduce themselves. And that's one of three explanations for cougars in the east, that the cats are gradually migrating back to historic ranges, much as the coyote did years ago. The second explanation is that the few isolated cats in the east are just escaped captives. The third is that they never went away. that 's the theory coal miner Todd Lester believes it's what keeps him going back to the woods on weekends. He scans topographic maps dense with rugged hills, looks out from this ridge onto miles of misty green, and thinks
6: now you can go over here on?" The- Edge, you know, look off. That's a lot of territory. Mountain lions could have survived here. A lot of people we talk to, they've got the impression that the whole East Coast is one big, large city, you know, continuous city, and they say, no, there's no way cougars could survive there. And and I've asked them, well, have you ever been to the Appalachian Mountains? There's a lot of habitat for cougars. What's going on? Hey, how are you? You guys tracking. Just then,
5: a trio of mountain bikers stops, curious about Lester's camera equipment. And at the mention of the word cougar, mountain biker Joey Boyle gives Lester another sighting account to add to his collection.
4: I knew it was a cat, cause a big cat, because it had that big, long, thick tail. Rode with it for 100 yards or something, and then we got to a dead end. There was a huge pile of dirt, and that thing was just gone. It just bounded out of nowhere. It was pretty amazing.
5: Lester listens intently and thanks Boyle, but he's remarkably unexcited. Boyle's account is years old, and Lester has taken in more than 3,000 such reports. What he needs now is to go beyond sightings to hard evidence, the kind he's sure his camera traps will produce.
6: Which I would have thought, you know, we would have got pictures sooner than what we got, you know, if they were as a population here. But, you know, I still haven't given up hope yet. You know, I think we'll eventually get a picture. I really do. Yeah, I don't I just can't foresee myself giving it up now, you know.
5: Obsessions are like that. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in the Monongahela National Forest.
0: For this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week... One, two, three, four... At MIT's Media Lab, a professor and his graduate students are exploding the boundaries of music, creating new instruments, new ways of composing, and new ways of understanding musicians and audiences.
5: You begin by creating a pulse, and then you can play a simple pattern like... Um, and then it hops over to an, another
0: of the, of the beat bugs. A new concept of music next time on Living on Earth. And between now and then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Before we go, we get drenched by an evening thunderstorm. What begins as a drizzle turns into a downpour, drumming rhythmically on a metal roof. Steve Peters recorded these sounds near the foothills of the Manzano Mountains in central New Mexico. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Christopher Bolick, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, Susan Shepard, and Jeff Young. Our interns are Jenny Cecil Moore, Diana Schoberg, and Monica Wright. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Our technical director is Paul Wabrat. Al Avery runs our website. Allison Dean composed our themes. Special thanks to Ernie Silver and Carl Lindemann. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. I'm Steve Curwood. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. Ten percent of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues.